This is First Farragut United Methodist Church's podcast. Thanks for joining us as we continue with our worship series, New Beginnings. Jesus doesn't always tell us what we want to hear. Instead, he may tell us what we need to hear. But when Jesus tells us what we need to hear, it may not feel so good. And now, here's Martha with our message. Our scripture reading today is from Luke chapter 4, verses 21 through 30. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, Is not this Joseph's son? He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself, and you will say, Do you hear also in your hometown the things that we have heard you heard you did at Capernaum? And he said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months. And there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow, a Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah. And none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up drove him out of the town and led him to the brow of the hill in which their town was built so that they might herald him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. This is the word of God for the people of God. Good morning. It feels like it's been 30 minutes since we started and I didn't get to greet you. My name is Martha. I'm the pastor here. It's good to be worshiping with you. If you're here for the first or second or third or however many times or online, we are grateful that you are here. We are in our final sermon today, fifth and final sermon in a new beginnings series. So we're ending with our new beginning series. And the interesting thing is that we're ending this series by looking at what, according to the Gospel of Luke, is Jesus' first sermon. So we're ending a sermon series with Jesus' first sermon. Which leads me to ask you a question. Here's your chance. What do you expect from a sermon? Notice I didn't say I might deliver on it, but the question is, what do you expect? Now, over the years, I've asked that question of several folks, because that's what you do as a pastor. And here are some of the responses that I've gotten when asking, what do you expect from a sermon? I expect a sermon to reveal something about the Bible in a way I hadn't thought of previously. Okay. Another response I've received is, I expect or I think a sermon should challenge us. I like that one. Another one that I've heard is, I think the best sermons are the ones that give me something to think about, something to take home with me. Another one that I've heard is, I expect a sermon to comfort and inspire me. And I expect a sermon to make me happy. 
I would argue that at any point in time, any given sermon will do one or two or three of those things, or maybe one on one week and something, the other one on the next week. But the interesting thing about those last two, I expect a sermon to comfort and inspire me and make me happy. The irony of that is that Jesus' first sermon didn't appear to make anybody happy. In fact, they got so mad at him that they yelled at him, ran him out of the synagogue, ran him out of the town, all the way to the edge of a cliff, wanting him to fall over it. Now, I have preached some really bad sermons in my day, and I have received some less than affirmative feedback in my day, but so far, no one's tried to kill me. I would like to keep that up. Today may be the day that that changes, but I would prefer to not be run out of town. What on earth did Jesus hope to accomplish with such a sermon? Well, I told you last week when, we, when the scripture that we used last week, that the scripture from last week and this week was really part one and part two. It's part one and part two of the scripture. It's also part one of a sermon and part two of a sermon. Now, you know, when the pastor puts a mini series inside a sermon series, you're in trouble. But this particular passage packs a lot of information that you really have to break it down into two sections. So let's review last week where we were. Where we were last week when we began reading, um, I believe it was in verse 14 of Luke 4 last week, Jesus had just begun his public ministry according to the gospel of Luke. Now we've been looking in this series at, at all of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, although we may not have used Mark, looking to see what Jesus's first coming meant as a new beginning for the first century Jewish people so that we can see what it means for us. So where we left off last week in the beginning of the fourth chapter, Jesus, according to the Gospel of Luke, had just begun his public ministry. He'd been traveling around the region of Galilee, going into to towns and to synagogues where he was preaching and teaching. And word of his preaching and teaching, <clears throat> excuse me, and miracles had begun to spread in the region of Galilee. If there were social, social media back in the first century, hashtag Jesus would have been trending in the region of Galilee. So he goes through all of these towns and he arrives at Nazareth, which is his hometown, the town which he grew up in probably from the time he was five, maybe seven years old. And he goes to Nazareth and as was his custom, he goes into the synagogue. He's handed a scroll from a prophet called Isaiah. It's a, a, we call it the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. It was, he was a prophet and written down on a scroll, handed to Jesus. Jesus reads the scroll and he says, I have come to proclaim good news. I've come to proclaim good news to the poor, release to the captive, recovery of sight to the blind. I've come to proclaim the time of God's favor. And he says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing today. He's essentially saying, this is me. This is what I have come to do. Now to the people to whom he spoke, this was good news. They had waited centuries for the promised one to come, the one who would rescue them, the one who would save them, the one who would make all of their wrongs right. This was good news to them. There were high fives. They were praising God. They were happy. Until someone sits back and says, wait a minute. Isn't this Joseph's son? Now, Nazareth was a small town. The people to whom Jesus spoke probably knew Joseph. 
Jesus was known to be Joseph's son. And Joseph was, as we would say, an average Joe. He was a carpenter. He was a a, a poor man. And Jesus was the son of a poor man. Jesus was probably uneducated, no formal religious training. He stands up and he says these words and they're thinking, who does he think he is? Now, Jesus, sensing what they're thinking, he leans in just a little bit, applies just a little pressure to them. And and frankly, this is where we get the saying, a prophet is not a prophet in his own hometown. This is where it comes from. Jesus leans into them and he begins to recall two stories, two stories for them that they would have known well. These are two stories that they would have heard told and retold throughout the centuries. And they happened about 750, maybe 800 years prior to the time in which Jesus stands up and reads the scriptures and tells them these stories. The first one is of a widow. You can actually, uh, you can go home and read this if you want to. It's in the Old Testament in 1 Kings chapter 17. There was a time of serious drought at that time in the history, in, in, their, in their time. Serious drought meaning several years of very little rainfall. Now, they didn't have the irrigation systems that we have today, and they just pumped in water from other places. They didn't have that. A drought meant no food. A drought meant no food or vegetation for the animals, so the animals were struggling too. It was a serious time. A drought meant death. So Elijah is a prophet of Israel at the time, and he's kind of rubbed the king, King Ahab, the wrong way, which prophets do, as we see from Jesus. So God has sent Elijah away from King Ahab for his own safety. So while Elijah is going away, he comes across a widow who's out gathering sticks, and he says to the widow, please go make me some bread and some water. And the widow says to him, "Um, mm -mm, I wish I could help you, but I'm not sure if you've noticed there's a drought going on. And she says, I have a little bit of oil and a little bit of flour. I'm out here gathering sticks to make a fire so that I can bake a cake of bread for my son and I, and then we're going to die. She says, this is all I have. Elijah says, well, I'll tell you what, if you will go make me some bread and bring me some water, I can assure you that that jar of oil and that little bit of flour or meal, they called it, will not run out until this drought is over. She's all right. So she goes, she makes him some bread, comes back. Guess what? The jar of oil and the meal did not run out until the drought was over. Pretty cool story, right? God, through Elijah, saves this woman and her son. God cares for the poor. God cares for the widow. God cares for those who don't have enough. Why on earth would the people to whom Jesus spoke be mad at him? Who wouldn't like that kind of story? The woman was a Gentile, which essentially means she was not of the Jewish origin or the ancestry that Elijah was or the people to whom Jesus spoke. She was an outsider. And Jesus goes on and says, there were tons of widows in the region of the Israelites in that time of the drought, but Elijah wasn't sent to any of them. 
Elijah was sent to that woman who was an outsider. So the people are thinking, "Mm, what's your point here? So then he goes on and he tells them another story. It's also from the Old Testament, from the uh, second, uh, second Kings 5, about a man named Naaman. Now, this particular story is about Elisha. We love to confuse our names in the Bible. There's Elijah, who's a prophet. Elisha is Elijah's successor. Did y'all keep that straight? Elisha, Elijah. We like to, we like to confuse ourselves. So this takes place probably about maybe 30 years after the story of Elijah and the widow. And the Israelites are at war with the Syrians. The Syrians have been trying to conquer them for for a long time. And there's a high-ranking Syrian officer named Naaman. Naaman is a Syrian. Elisha is a Jewish person. They are on sworn enemy sides. Naaman has leprosy, which is a dreaded disease in the ancient world. On one of Naaman's and his army's raids, they capture a Jewish girl. She becomes a slave. She ends up being a servant of the queen of the Syrians. And she finds out that Naaman has leprosy. And she says, oh, I wish that we were in Israel with my people. There's a man there named Elisha. He could heal you of your leprosy. Long story short, Naaman sends for Elisha. Remember, they are sworn enemies, sworn enemies. Elisha comes, Naaman is healed. They all live happily ever after. Not really. They continued to fight. But Jesus again reminds the people to whom he's speaking in this this scripture that there were many lepers in the time of Elisha. But Elisha didn't heal the lepers of Israel he healed Naaman, the sworn enemy. Again, Elisha went to an outsider. It's at that point that the people to whom Jesus spoke got mad, drove him out of town, and planned to throw him off a cliff. But remember what Jesus said to them. I have come to bring good news I've come to bring good news to the poor, release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind. They were excited about that. Our scripture even says they were amazed at the gracious words that he spoke until they realized it wasn't just for them. It was for all people. His message was not what they expected to hear. It was not what they wanted to hear. They knew the stories of the widow and of Naaman. They knew the stories well. The lesson of the stories, however, had been lost. Now, let's not be too hasty in passing judgment on the people because we have a tendency to do the same thing. How often do we want to cling to the parts of the Bible or cling to the parts of Jesus' teaching that, that bring us comfort? Jesus said, I came to bring abundant life. We want that. Jesus said, for God so loved the world. That's good news. We like that. But Jesus also said, love your enemies. Mm, we don't like that one too much. Scripture tells us in God's eyes, there is no distinction between people and people groups. 
Yet we want to pick and choose scriptures that support our view on any given topic, human sexuality, politics, economics, you name it. But scripture says God sees no distinction between people. So let's not be too hasty in judging these people because it's very easy for us to remember a story and overlook the lesson. So what is the lesson or lessons for us? Jesus was trying to help them see that God's love, God's grace, God's mercy, God's forgiveness, God's healing extends to all people. And all means all. All means all. Including the out groups, the outsiders, including the ones who don't think, look, act, believe, whatever you want to call it, like us. Jesus' mode of operation was always love first, ask questions later. The people to whom Jesus hung out with showed us this. Jesus hung out with tax collectors and not only hung out with them, had, tax, had a tax collector as one of his disciples. Now that's lost on us, the, 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 the deep way the people despised tax collectors is lost on us. They were crooked, crooked business people who took advantage of the poor people. Tax collectors were hated. But Jesus even had a tax collector as one of his disciples, and he hung out with them. Jesus hung out with the people that others despised. Jesus Granted grace to adulterers, to thieves. We even see it on the cross. He had a conversation with a woman who, at best, could probably be called unchaste. She had had several husbands, many of which probably did not end in death, but perhaps divorce. And at this point in time, when Jesus talked to her, she was living with a man, which, by the way, was a no-no in the first century. But Jesus didn't judge her. He approached her. He talked with her. He loved first. Ask questions later. We even see it with Jesus dying on the cross. The people who had just captured him, beaten him, nailed him to a cross. He's on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Love first. Ask questions later. Jesus did it repeatedly. The other lesson we get from this is when we do that, when we love first and ask questions later, we will run into opposition. When we remind ourselves to pay attention to the lessons and the stories of Jesus and we actually begin to live it out, we will find opposition. Jesus did why would we think we're any different? But the interesting thing, when we encounter opposition, if we look at what Jesus did, we'll know what to do when we encounter it. What did Jesus do as they were trying to run him out of town, drove him to a hill, tried to kill him, we're told he passed through them and he went on his way undeterred by their anger and their opposition, he continued to do what he was sent to do. 
What's really fascinating about that is after he left, if we were to read on, if you're reading in our um, Bible Gateway reading plan, you read this scripture this week, you'll see what happened after Jesus was run out of town. He kept going and did what he was called to do, and he went to a town called Capernaum where he did exactly what he'd done in Nazareth and every other town. He went to the synagogue, he preached, he taught. They actually liked his preaching, believe it or not. They liked his preaching, they liked his teaching, they loved the miracles that he worked, so much so that if we were to read on in uh, verse 42, the crowds were looking for him, begging him to stay with them. They loved him. One town hated him, tried to kill him. One town loved him, wanted him to stay. But look what Jesus did when they wanted him to stay. He said to them, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom to the other cities also. For this purpose I have come. And he continued. Those are two examples. One, they hated him, ran him off a cliff, Jesus could have said, I'm done with you ungrateful people and stopped right there. But he kept going. Then he goes to another town. They love him. Who doesn't want to, be, to, to, to belong, to be accepted, to be loved, to be respected? Oh, how easy it would have been to stay right there where it was comfortable. But he didn't. He kept going with his mission. Disciples of Jesus... If, what, if, they, if we are listening to the Holy Spirit, really living out what Jesus models, we will encounter opposition, yes, but we will encounter a peace that passes understanding. When we are listening to the Holy Spirit, paying attention to what Jesus teaches, we will continue to grow and take steps. This series has been about the new beginning that Jesus brings, that Jesus brought to the ancient world. We seem to forget he had a hard time too. He ran into some opposition. He was challenging people the way they thought. He does the same thing to us. But what we can see is that a new beginning no matter what the new beginning is, whether it's a commitment to follow Jesus for the first time or a commitment to follow Jesus more closely or any other new beginning, a new job, a new school, a new chapter in life will be met with a combination of challenge and comfort. It will be met with opposition and support. Anytime we embark on a new beginning, we'll have that combination So the question for us as we end a new beginning story, we're not done. We keep going. What is your next step? What is it that God is calling you to do to follow Jesus? We can't stay in the opposition, in the challenging times, and we can't stay in the comfort. Following Jesus always calls us to keep going. Disciples of Jesus are ones who are constantly loving, growing, and serving. And it requires, as we started with this series, a commitment. It doesn't just happen by osmosis. I wish it did, but it doesn't. It requires a commitment. 
When we started this, this series, I challenged you to be present in worship for eight weeks straight. I am not going to ask you to raise your hands. I'm not even going to look. Whether in person or online, eight weeks straight. Now, some of you are thinking, woohoo, I only have to do this for eight weeks. No, 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 no. That was a start. You have to keep going. You were challenged to join in one of our Bible reading plans. The information of where to find them is in your bulletin. Either read through the Bible or the Bible Gateway. How's it going? My guess is you've probably had some hiccups along the way. I know I have. I've spent one day catching up three days worth of reading. I've been there, done that. It's okay. Keep going. We have some, some tools. We're not able to gather quite as frequently in small groups as we used to. We're working on trying to bring that back. But there are tools on YouTube, on our uh, 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 private Facebook uh, First Farragut Church Online group. There are tools out there to help you in your journey. Use them. Because following Jesus doesn't happen by osmosis. It requires us to make a commitment. And as we see in the example of Jesus in this story, we have to keep going. What is your next step? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Be sure to join us next week as we begin a new worship series about the will of God, aimed at deepening our understanding of what is meant by the will of God. There are many questions, assumptions, and misconceptions around the phrase God's will. In many cases, a faulty understanding of the will of God leaves a poor representation of God's character in the hearts and minds of people. See you then.